Good afternoon, everyone. It's uh, Conversations with Code 9 again. Uh, I have a really special guest today, a, uh, a police officer from California who I was lucky enough to meet on my Churchill Fellowship back in 2018, Nick Turkovich. Good morning, Californian time, Nick. Or good afternoon, actually. Yeah, afternoon. It's, uh, it's a bright, sunny day here in uh, sunny, wintry California, so... <laughs> Good to hear your voice. Thanks so much, mate, for uh, for jumping on the line. There's a couple of old fellas trying to sort out a bit of technology to make this work. It was a bit of a laugh, but we got there. We did, and uh, I would much rather go into a gunfight at work than have to deal with the technology, that's for sure. <laughs> and look, Nick, I was lucky enough, and you were certainly graceful enough to welcome me um, in the first week of my Churchill Fellowship Um where I spent a magnificent week with you at the West Coast post-trauma retreat in the Napa Valley up in California. Um, before we get into, I suppose, a conversation around the retreat itself, uh, it'd be really cool if you could just um, tell the listeners a little bit about your policing career and, and how you got to where you are now. All right. I, I uh, started uh, my police career uh, here in California. I uh, uh, a town of about 120,000 people, and uh, not not the nicest town. It's probably not uh, the town where I I would want to raise my children. A lot of it was a very high crime, a lot of drugs and gangs in in, in the town that I worked in. And um, I started I think in 1987, and uh, I was a police officer there for 25 years, and retired uh, in. I've been doing this uh, work, working with uh, first responders for probably about 30 years now. And then after my retirement from the police department, I went into it full time. Uh huh. So, yeah, so it, uh, I worked I worked the street my entire career. I, I loved being a street cop. I worked uh, my last 17 years. I worked uh, the graveyard shift um, in the probably I would say probably the worst part of town. And I enjoyed uh, working in that that environment because I was a training officer and I loved my young officers getting a taste of uh, nighttime policing. So, yeah, great career. Helped uh, start the peer support program at my department a long, long time ago and just fell in love with uh, helping cops and first responders recover from their post-traumatic stress injuries that they've sustained in line of duty. So when you mention you you worked the graveyard shift, which is a which is night shift, I understand. But did you permanently work that shift? Yeah, I I, I worked that. My, my you know it's funny. My my family still thinks I lost my mind by doing that because I had enough seniority not to work that shift. But uh, yeah, that was my choice. I just I really liked working night nighttime policing. So how, how many how many years did you work? the graveyard shift then uh i don't know how many years altogether. i know my last 17 years was all working graveyards so out of 25 years uh, probably 80 percent of that time was working when the sun was down wow and as you say that was a voluntary thing you you volunteered for that yes yeah that was uh, my own doing so uh, and when i retired I, I it was kind of funny i didn't think i'd be able to uh sleep at nighttime uh, 
because uh, I thought I'd, I'd train my body to be a, to sleep only when the sun was up, but I've mastered that in the past uh, eight years. So I, I sleep like a normal human. Now. <laughs> and on, on reflection, Nick, do you think that graveyard shift um, had any effect on your well-being at all? Yes, I'm not suggesting for anybody listening to this podcast that you work nights for your the majority <laughs> of your career. Uh, uh, yeah, they, it, my, I, I don't remember the numbers, but my wife, uh, who's a nurse, uh, decided to uh, start putting numbers together on how many hours of sleep I had lost over the years. And it, it turned into actually years and not hours. So, uh, yeah, it's probably not a good idea, but I sure love to work in that kind of work. And what was the catalyst for your retirement, Nick? Did you just age retire? No, I had uh, I had sustained um, numerous injuries, um, both of my knees, my back, my shoulder. Uh, it got to the point where uh, I was medically retired. Mm-hmm. So, and the the good thing I was I was already at retirement age. I was at a service retirement age, so the medical retirement. Um, I would say it brought my career to a halt, but it was probably a good thing that it that it that it happened uh, for my just for my mental well well being and obviously for my physical. Yeah, and what got you into what got you into the zone of you said you set up your department's first peer support and all that. What got you into that line of um, work? Well, I just I had dealt with uh, post traumatic stress um, issues while I was in the military and uh, when I got into, when I got into police work, I, I, I saw in some of my colleagues after they had been in, involved with some pretty, pretty heavy critical incidents that they were experiencing symptoms that were similar to what I had experienced. And at that time, nobody was talking about PTSD within law enforcement. It was, it was just for combat veterans and, but there was just a, there was so, there, it was so similar to what I was that I had experienced that uh, a couple officers and I we, we got together with a mental health professional started talking about this and and uh, realized that there was some there was help out there for for the men and women in law enforcement although it was very early in, into first responders seeking help. But we decided to start a peer support program. Uh, we kind of invented it. Uh, we didn't know what we were doing. We did. Uh, we did our first uh, peer support meeting in uh, in a bar. So uh, <laughs> it was probably the most well attended of all of our meetings. <laughs> we found out that's probably not where we needed to be uh, talking about mental health issues. So we we grew. We grew. We learned. Um, we we. We were able to find some mental health professionals that could help us uh, understand what post-traumatic stress was, and you know, we, we built a pretty successful program for our little department. So when, when, when you take yourself back to when that started, describe for us uh, the stigma around mental health and law enforcement back then. Well, it, Yes, sadly, it, it's still like that in, in some areas in the United States, and I'm, tr- I'm sure in Australia as well. Uh, there, the stigma is still there that if you seek any kind of treatment or, or even acknowledge that you're suffering 
from any kind of a, a mental health issue that that you're somewhat less of, a, of the officer that's riding in the car next to you that, that isn't seeking that kind of help. So, I mean, it was unheard of back in those days when I first started. Uh, but sadly, there's places in the United States that you still would never hear a, an officer admit that they have mental health issues because of the job. It's getting better in California. I'd, I'd say that, that we probably, you know, not lead the, lead the states in, in taking care and at least admitting that there's a, a mental health issue involved with law enforcement. I, th- I think we're, we're probably in the top two or three in, in the country when it comes to states. Uh, we're doing a lot better admitting that we have issues, and then we're also doing a better job of, of finding treatment for people. What do you contribute to the improved reduction of stigma than, say, for instance, in California? What's your thoughts on that? Why is it improving? Well, I think I think awareness. Um, I mean, for 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 our organization, you know, we've we've been doing a, a lot of training around the state of California for twenty years, uh, explaining you know, what post-traumatic stress is and cumulative stress and critical incident stress and, and just saying it out loud. And, and what, what we found is that when you have an officer, uh, when he or she is willing to talk about their own uh, battles that they've fought, people start listening. And, yeah. and I think that awareness is probably the, the greatest, um, the greatest thing that has helped reduce the stigma. Yeah, I agree, and it's um, you know we have, you know, I think sometimes the lived experience discussions, as you say, you know, you have officers and, and colleagues that want to tell their story, seem to be a really good vehicle to for our fellow colleagues to sit back and take some notice. Yeah, well, I mean, it's so many, so many of our people they think they're alone, they think they're the only one, you know, on their shift. Um, or even in their department that's that's struggling with with the mental health uh, issues, and it is, if we keep silent, then that person will continue to believe that they're the only one, and that's why we have our suicide rate amongst law enforcement officers in the United States is is a, is a in the world of pandemics, it's it's been a pandemic for a long time. Uh, I, I travel around this country trying to convince uh, law enforcement officers and, and firefighters and dispatchers that there's there's help out there and you don't have to commit suicide to make the to make the voices go away that are in your head do you find Nick that um, some of the issues around the barriers for help seeking are more at the officer level or if there was more engagement and more acknowledgement perhaps at uh, management level, things would be better for the officers. What's your view on that? That's a that's a great question, and people ask me that frequently. It's like, is it is it the officers and is it the line personnel that are not seeking help, or is it the the command staff or the administration that's preventing that? And it's it's a hard it's a hard. It's, it's hard to, to really gauge that because it, it really depends on the department. For, for instance, uh, my department, 
for for many years would not address mental health issues. That came from the administration. The administration didn't did not want to address the issues. Uh, then then that uh, that administration kind of changed, and then another administration comes in that that says, yeah, we need to look at these issues, we need to address them, and we need to seek treatment for our people. And so that's just one police department in Northern California. Yeah. Now, magnify that across the nation. So sometimes it could be one department, you know, in, in 2020 is seeking help for their employees and addressing the issues. Um, a command change could change that in 2021. Yeah. It's, 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 so it's hard, it's hard to really diagnose whether it's the aligned people that aren't seeking help or is it the administrations that, that aren't addressing it. Uh, I would say this, I would say in, in the 30 plus years that I've been doing this work, there's been a remarkable change for the better on the administrative side and on the line side, uh, the line side, they're asking for help and, and a lot of police administrations are seeking to help their folks. The problem that we're seeing in the States, I, I tell this story all the time. I said for 30 years, I, I pounded my fists on the, on the desk, uh, just, you know, berating my, my fellow police officers around the, the country to seek help when they needed it. Yeah. And now they're listening, but the resources aren't there to help them. That's, that's the problem that we're finding in the, in the, in, in this country right now. Uh, I mean, I'm very fortunate. Just the other day, I talked to one of my colleagues who's finally seeking help. I was able to get him set up with a, a therapist that afternoon. Uh, but we're in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there's there's dozens of qualified uh, therapists out there that will help first responders. If, if I move one state over into Nevada, uh, in Nevada, there's that... In the state of Nevada, I've identified eight therapists that work with first responders. Wow. Yeah, and that's a, that's a four-hour drive from where I'm at right now. So, so some uh, I do a lot of work in the Midwest uh, and in the Kansas City uh, metropolitan area, Kansas City, Missouri. There were two clinicians that saw first responders, and there was over 250 first responders in that community and, and you it, can imagine the lack of resources around around our country and that that's where your credibility takes a bit of a whack doesn't it if you're trying to encourage people to seek help and you might finally get them to a stage where they're you know, they're, ha they're happy to do that and they've broken down the barriers to reach out and then all of a sudden if there's no resources to help them um your credibility uh, takes a massive whack. It does. It does. And, and, and that's the situation that I, that I find myself into now is, uh, well, Greg, you've been out to our retreat. You've seen what we do and you see the values, you know, of, of spending a week at an inpatient retreat with us. Um, it's a, we have a nine to 10 month wait to get into our program right now it's because we just don't, we don't have the resources to treat as many people as that are asking for help. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I would say that there, there is a, there is a void that needs to be filled. We need more 
uh, clinicians. We need more programs uh, to help first responders, you know, you know, in this country and certainly around the world. I know you and I have talked about uh, what it would look like to have something, you know, in Australia for your folks. And, you know, now, and now our organization has grown where it's not just Australia asking for help. You know, yeah. we have other countries that are saying, could you come and build something, you know, for us. So yeah. the world, the world is, the world is finally seeing that our first responders need help. And I think, I think that's that's a huge step. Now it's just we need to find the resources. Yeah, I agree, hundred uh, percent. West Coast post trauma retreat, Nick. I mentioned it at the very start, and it was the beginning and set the foundations for my whole for my whole fellowship. Um, tell tell us a little bit about the retreat and how it started. Well, the re- the retreat started uh, sadly. Uh, a, a local San Francisco Bay Area detective was working a, uh, a horrible child crime case. And in the midst of the investigation, uh, he just, the, the stress became too much and he took his own life by uh, jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And people within his department knew that he was struggling, but there was no resources. They didn't know what to do. Uh, and sadly, uh, he took his own life. Um, but the, but something came of that. And a group of first responders in his community and a group of mental health professionals got together and decided this, this can't continue. And we need to, we need to do something to help our, our first responder community. And that's how, that's how the West Coast post-trauma retreat started. It, uh, it was a handful of men and women that got together and said, we got to stop this. We don't want to we don't want to let one more first responder die at their own hands or to have, or to destroy their, their lives through drugs or alcohol or whatever coping mechanism that they may choose. So, so it started uh, in 1999 and the first retreat was in uh, 2001. So it, it took, it took a while to get it up and running mm-hmm. and then, uh, it has just blossomed. We uh, the the organization started out with uh, one uh, retreat. It it turned into two retreats, and now we're doing thirty retreats, thirty plus retreats around the country now. Wow! Because I even think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but when I was there uh, in 2018, and so there was the one in California, and there may have been one other in the country. Would that have been right back then, and it's just gone gangbusters since then? Has it? Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I think when you came out, we were in California, Oregon, and Arizona. Yeah. And now we are in Washington, Kansas, uh, Nebraska, and Indiana. That's impressive. So yes, we're growing. We're growing. And what what does a typical um, West Coast post-trauma retreat look like? In other words, what's the program entail? Who can go there? Yeah, so it's it, it's it's a one-of-a-kind program. It's it's the only program uh, in the United States that works with only first responders. Uh, so we work with, with uh, police officers, firefighters, uh, paramedics, and dispatchers. Mm-hmm. And 
and it's a uh, it's a week long live in program, which is uh, so well, depending on where you're at and what 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 area uh, of the country that uh, if you're at one of our retreats, like the one that you came to, Greg was uh, in the Napa Valley, which is out out in the the, the wine country of uh, California. It's surrounded uh-huh. by trees and nature. And it's quiet. And we try to uh, bring our people and put them into a peaceful setting uh, like that. Yep. It's a, uh, it, they're long days, as, as you remember. Uh, we start early in the morning and late at night. And it's a live-in program. So the, the peers, uh, the clinicians, the chaplain, and the clients that are there, we, we, you know, we room together, we eat our meals together and the whole week is, is filled up with training and, and, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, group therapy. Uh-huh. And what, what's the, what's the application process and how, how is it determined as to who's selected to attend the program? Yeah. Great question. Uh, so, so, we don't advertise. Uh, we don't. We don't advertise because we're we don't need to. Uh, sadly, we're already overwhelmed with the amount of uh, people that want want to seek our our treatment. Our our advertisement is the success of the program by uh, somebody coming and attending the program, getting help. Uh, they tell they tell a friend. And the next thing you know is the friend is calling us. So uh, so the. The first step is somebody making a phone call to to our uh, intake coordinator. Uh, we have a we have a licensed clinician that uh, coordinates uh, our uh, schedules and our our intakes. Uh, the initial The initial conversation on the phone is to de- determine whether or not the person is a is a first responder, and and to kind of get a brief overview of their symptoms to see if they are suffering from something that we could help them with. Um, frequently we'll get phone calls from people that are struggling with drug and alcohol issues, um, but don't have post-traumatic stress issues. And, and so we obviously would refer them to uh, a facility that would be able to help them for what they need. Uh, so that's the process. That's the, that's the first step. The second step is a, a, one of our clinicians will do a clinical intake over the phone to determine, uh, kind of lock it down. Uh, to see if, if our program is suited for their needs. Uh, and because we, we deal with post-traumatic stress, cumulative stress, and critical incident stress, it's easier for our clinicians to pin down what what the, the needs are for the client. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at that process, they go. It's a, it's a waiting list, unfortunately. It's like nine to ten months right now. And they're scheduled for a, a date. We suggest uh, we suggest that they seek treatment on their own, like uh, seeing a uh, a local clinician that understands first responders. Um, we, we sadly, a lot of our first responders use um, alcohol and sometimes drugs to cope with this. So, so if there are those issues, we tell them to to stop stop using alcohol as a coping mechanism, and if they need if they need to go to a rehab program to, to do that before they come to our, our program. 
and to get exercise of all things. Exercise is probably one of the best things you can do to uh, to help your your mind cope with this. So, so those are so that's kind of the that's kind of the steps they have to jump through. And then uh, once they're scheduled to a, come to a retreat, we get them up to the retreat and they spend a week with us. And at the end of the retreat, they're usually better. Not a hundred percent because I don't I don't know what that even looks like what 100 percent looks like yeah but they're certainly equipped to be able to take what they learn at the retreats back into the real world and uh get back to living uh we say we are a we are a return to living program not a return to work program uh-huh which is more important right because return to living will just organically turn into a return to work if if you return to better living Absolutely. I, t- I, t- I told a guy the other day on the phone, I, you know, he said, I'm just worried that I'm not going to be able to go back to work. <laughs> and, I, and I told him, I said, you know, I, it's like, I want you to be alive. And I, I want you to live a decent life and a happy life and, and enjoy the things that, that are out there. Uh, let's see about getting you back to that. And then we talk about going back to work. So do, do the clients need to have an actual formal diagnosis Nick of PTSD, depression, anxiety before they um, are permitted to come on to a retreat. Yes, and and but I, I would say my clinical staff would probably get mad at me when I say this. I would say it's a, a loose diagnosis through our program, mm-hmm. uh, and when I the reason I say that is that we don't want to get tied up in in the uh, legalities around diagnosing somebody. <laughs> for a workman's comp uh, and insurance purposes around that. So I would say they, they, they have to be symptomatic enough uh, to be able to come to our program. But we, won't, we will not officially diagnose somebody um, of any kind of mental illness or, or stress. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what do you... Um uh, I forgot where I was going to go with that. I suppose from a cost perspective, what is it? What's the cost for an attendee? Right now, it's it's four thousand eight hundred dollars mm-hmm. um, American. I don't know how that comes out to Australian dollar, but uh, I mean it's that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, for, you know, to spend. You know, and but it's 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 worth it. It's, it's worth it. I mean, you know, to see the, the change in the, the people that come through our program, uh, it just, you don't get that anywhere else, I don't think. And to be honest with you, it's more costly to go to an alcohol or drug rehab program out here uh, than, than what we charge. Do, to, from a cost coverage perspective, do most attendees have to self-fund that Nick, or do some departments, is it covered under workers' compensation, or does it get paid for by their department? Um, can the attendees do it in work time, or do most of them have to do it in their own time? Yeah, that's a uh, great question. About the, last, the last statistic that, that, that I put together was about 50% of our attendees will be self-pay, so they'll be paying out of their own pocket. The, the other 50% would either be workman's comp or their departments. For, for instance, like my, my old police department, uh, 
they they would pay uh, for the, for an employee to go through the program. They, they would they would take it out of the training budget or find some some way to pay for it. And that was that was very helpful. But there's you know there's huge funding problems out in uh, in our area right now for for local municipalities, especially the, on the law enforcement side. So there's so there's different methods of doing that. So the the only the only the only problem that we have is most uh, healthcare insurance companies will not pay for our treatment. Uh, so, for instance, you know, you can go to your healthcare provider and and get a prescription to go to rehab, but they wouldn't give us a, they wouldn't give you a prescription to go to our program. So a lot that's and that's probably why fifty percent of our folks pay out of their pocket. There's, there's probably a lot to be said, isn't there, for those for those officers or those attendees whose departments pay for their attendance. There's a lot to be said for the validation that comes from that, isn't it? The acceptance of it from the department that they're prepared to pay that sort of money for someone to get better. Oh yeah, I, you know, it, there there's a there's a there's kind of an underlying issue that is prevalent at most of our retreats that we call organizational betrayal. It's when, it's when you're, you go out there and you do this very difficult job for your organization and then you're injured and you're not cared for. So when, so when a department is willing to spend the money to send one of their people to the program, it says a lot and, and, and it kind of validates the work that, that the, the officer or firefighter dispatcher has done for that department. Yeah, absolutely. Can you just um, perhaps outline, just for the guys and girls listening, what a typical day's program might look like whilst you're on the retreat? Sure. So we, we start every day. Uh, um, breakfast is served around 7 o'clock in the morning. We do a chapel service, which is uh, kind of a non-denominational um, religious get-together with a chaplain. And not everybody has to attend that, but uh, but most of our folks will attend that. Uh, and then it uh, that's at seven thirty, and then eight o'clock we're we're right. We start up our program, and they would start that out as we call it a morning check in, where we just go around check with uh, with all the clients that are there. And then, mind you, we, we have six clients, but we have fifteen to twenty peers that are there helping out. And most of our peers are graduates of our program that are. Uh-huh. coming back to pay it forward yeah so so we'll do this morning check-in Every, everybody gets a chance to check in we, we check to see how their symptoms were the night before did they get any rest were there any triggers any, you know any any new insights and memories that popped up so that's the that's the start of the day we do that every every day then uh, we move into education well they'll get education on what post-traumatic stress is uh, what uh, what the typical first responder personality is like. We'll learn uh, psychophysiology of stress, family issues, things like that. Those those are taught throughout the week, and uh, then uh, we move into the the uh, what we call the debriefing process, which is a smaller group. Uh, it's the six clients, two peers, two clinicians, and a chaplain. And they work their way through the critical incidents that brought them to the retreat. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that goes on all week. We do uh, midweek. We do a, an alcohol and drug education. Uh, introduce them to 12-step programs. Uh, we do an actual AA meeting just so that they could get the feel of what what that would be like, and in case that's something that they would want to uh, take part in. Uh, around th- on Thursday, Thursday is family day. We talk about family issues that they may have had before they came to the retreat. Uh, I'm sorry, before they got into the job. Um, and, and then maybe things that have popped up after they got into this kind of work. And uh, then Friday, our last day, is kind of a graduation. We send them on their way. And uh, probably, I'd say, 30% of the, our graduates will eventually make their way back to a retreat to serve as a peer. And that's also good validation for the program, isn't it? If you've got 30% of your, of your attendees are coming back to help out because they believe in it. It, it really is, and Greg, I tell you right now, we're you know, we're not locked down as much as, as you guys have been locked down, um, but you know we're locked down because of this COVID um, you know situation. And so we're running very small retreats with just a select number of of peers to be able to to be there. And and this year has been tough because I've had to turn away so many of our peers um, that want to come and help out. And it's, it's really been tough on them not to be able to come back. So, yeah, it's a, I think that's a great testimony of, of uh, how well, at least in their cases, how well the program did for them and they want to come back and pay it forward. Do you know, a uh, question without notice, Nick, just off the top of your head, do you have any idea how many first responders you've had through the program since it opened in 2001? Yeah, we're around, uh, I think we're at close to 1,200 uh, graduates have gone through our program, and and how many do you have typically on, on a on a retreat at one time? Uh, six. So we have six. So we have six people that come through, and yeah, so we've helped quite a few people. How uh, so? Each program is they have a mix of first responders, or do you you stick to a program with all police officers or all paramedics? It's a mixture, so you could go to you could go for for instance. We just uh, we just closed down a retreat today. We just finished up a retreat today, and there were three firefighters and three police officers. Uh, we we have another one that starts up the first week of January. I think uh, that one is two two firefighters, uh, three police officers, and a dispatcher. So it's all it's a it's a mix. Sometimes. Although it's only happened to me one time where I was out there and there it was six police officers it was just, and it's just a luck of the draw. Uh-huh. How, do you, how do you find the different agencies um, go with each other? So, you know, we all know that these sort of retreats for first responders um, are only going to work, right, if, if we're amongst our own because, you know, we're, we're strange beasts and that from a privacy and a confidentiality perspective, this sort of thing, in my opinion, probably wouldn't work if we were doing this with the general community. So um, how do you find the, you know, the different organisations and the different first responder agencies mix during the course of the, of the retreat? Yeah, that is a great question. I'll be honest with you, when I, when I first was introduced to this kind of work, uh, I, I, came, I came into the program I think in 2005 is when when I came around to the program. 
when I heard that there was going to be a mixture, I didn't think it would work. Yeah, there, there's, and I don't know how it is um, over there, but over here we we kind of we have a, a love hate relationship with the fire department. I say we being the law enforcement side. Yeah, uh, yeah, we, and, and most of it's in good fun, and we banter back and forth at each other. And again, most of it's in good fun. We appreciate what they do. They appreciate what we do. But there's a reason I didn't become a firefighter, and there's reasons they didn't become police officers. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't think that it would mix well, but I was proved wrong on the first retreat that I ever attended as a peer. When, when I saw, when I saw that they worked fine together, um, it, it, the, the banter is still there and it's fun. It's fun to pick on my, uh, my firefighter friends and they love picking on me. Uh, but it's, but to see them work together and heal together, uh, is, is, it's pretty. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. So there's been there's been no really any issues about integrating all the different first responder agencies into one retreat. No, no. The, the only the only the only thing that I would say in the mixture of having all the different professions in there, we don't see a lot of dispatchers, and I would say the majority of the time. If we do have a dispatcher there, the dispatcher is the only dispatcher. Yeah. Which, which, which sometimes it's not it's not intentional, but sometimes they feel alienated. They feel like they're, they're kind of a lone person on the island. Uh, but by the by the middle of the week, everybody is a family there. It it really is a, a strange environment, and that that alienation goes away by. Tuesday or Wednesday, everybody seems to be uh, there for each other. And I can I can attest to that family feeling, Nick, too, for my week there. Even you know whether it be from the other attendees um, to all the staff. Um, I can't remember the lady, the cook. I can't remember her name, but she was just a delightful person. Um, and everyone just seemed to get on so long, uh, so well. Um, and one thing I did want to touch on, and some of the listeners who would have heard the podcast I did a couple of weeks ago with Julie Werniak from the Tempe Police Department, she told us about the backpack analogy that she experienced when she was at the retreat. And I must say, Nick, uh, on the graduation day, that was a very emo- very emotional time. And you know, I was there essentially as a peer observer, and I found it extremely emotional that uh, graduation ceremony. Can you just enlighten the listeners to what that backpack analogy is and what that looks like on the graduation day? Yeah. So, so we do we do this kind of a visual experience with rocks. Uh, we we ask our clients on Monday to think about part of their traumatic event or whatever they're they need to work on. We ask them to think about what that would be like, and we have them memorialize it by writing it down on a rock, and the rock goes in the backpack. And the, 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 the symbolization around that is, is that you and I could probably walk up and down a mountain carrying one rock in our backpack, and it's not going to slow us down. It's not, it's not going to get to a point where we can't make it up to the top of the mountain. But, but as long as you're in this kind of career, the the... The, the critical incident calls 
if we, if we keep adding a rock here and a rock there, at 30 years, are you going to be able to stand up, let alone get up that mountain carrying that backpack? Yeah. So, so yeah. we, so we symbolize, we symbolize, and I, my, the way I explain it to the, the clients is, hey, put something on that rock that you want to work on this week. Put in your rear view mirror. So all you have to do is look back at it as you're driving away from it. And they have no idea what the the rock, um, sim, the rock ceremony at the end of the week is. Yeah. So for instance, so for my one of my horrible critical incidents that I was involved in as a police officer, I I, I shot my own brother. My brother was mentally ill. He went to my parents' house to kill them, and I responded and had to shoot my own brother. Uh, that that. That event happened on September 19th, and it was a day that changed changed my life as a police officer and as a human being. That would, if I was at that retreat, that's what I would want to work on. So I would write September 19th to memorialize that, work on that event during the week to try to get past it, and then at the end of the week, we set down those rocks um, and leave them behind. And that's probably what that other person was telling talking to you guys about was was that event. And it is very emotional because you, a lot of the people, well, for, for my case, I mean, I carried, I carried that rock since uh, 2002. Mm. Uh, so that's a, that's a, a long time. No, I'm sorry. 1992. I was 10 years off on that. So that happened in 1992. So that's a long time to carry that rock. So mm. it's very emotional to see people set down that rock and, and leave it behind. Yeah, and I vividly remember the ceremony I was at. You know, we had people standing around in a circle and each one taking the time to put their rock down. And before you knew it, everyone was essentially just falling into each other's arms, crying. It was very powerful. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's the payoff for the hard work that they do that week. That's for sure. Yeah, and I've been I've been fortunate. I've done. I think I just did a retreat. The last retreat I did was in Kansas City. Um, and let's see that. I think that was 133 retreats I've done. What do you do to look after yourself, Nick? Apart from the fact that you've just described a critical incident, which I, I and probably most other police officers in this world can't believe um, that they would have to face, but doing 133 retreats as well and all your work in relation to the peer support that you set up in your department, what do you do to look after yourself? Well, my, my faith is probably the strongest thing in my life. Um, you know, I've been uh, part part of my other world is I've been um, I've been a pastor and been in Christian ministry for a long time. Um, so I would say my, my faith is probably the strongest part of my life that that keeps me grounded and keeps me keeps me moving forward. But I've also I've also set up a network of people that watch out for me. Obviously, my wife. My children, my, my, my children are grown. My, I have two daughters and my two son-in-laws. They know what I've gone through. They know what I've experienced, and they watch me. So uh, I, had, I had a kind of a breakdown one day, um, and my son-in-law walks up to me and says, hey, let's go talk. It was simple as that. He said, we sat down, and I talked to him for a little while because he had recognized that I was stressed, I, you know, I was experiencing some stress, and and uh, he knew what I'd been through, and, and he was there. But here's the way it works, Greg. If I had I not shared that part of my life with him, he wouldn't have known. He wouldn't have known to come up and talk to me about it. Right? Yeah. 
Absolutely. So, so I think that's probably been one of the greatest things is having a network of people. Uh, well, here's the thing I, I, I know all I have to do is either figure out how to work the computer or figure <laughs> out how to make a long distance phone call to Australia and Greg Dean's going to pick up that phone and he's going to be able to talk to me and help me get through this. That, that's how, that's how we, that's how I survive it. I've got it. I've got people around this world now that I can call. Absolutely. And we have, we've been lucky enough and we've caught up or at least once, you know, we caught up last year in San Diego when I was over there for a conference and we shared dinner together. And as you're saving a couple of old blokes like us who can work out some technology and jump on a, a Facebook call like this and we can just talk. Yeah. So, I mean, that, so you ask how, how can I do 130 some odd retreats and, and do all the other things that I'm responsible for in my life? That's how I got, I, I got, I have people that are, that are walking this path with me. And that's, I think that's one of the things that I did not have before. And that's what led me down the path to nearly taking my own life. Mm. So, so yeah, so that's, that's my network and I'm glad they're there. I'm glad I have friends like you and, and, and law enforcement and fire brothers and sisters around the world right now that I can, I can lean on when I'm having a rough day. And I'm just looking forward to, uh, to COVID disappearing because you know, I really look forward to meeting your family one day and bringing my family over and introducing them to you because you know, this is one of the things that this fellowship really I benefited out of was uh, the friendships that I made during that time all across the world and sometimes those friendships just foster out of nothing don't they and all of a sudden you you got friends for life and you can talk about things like this yeah you know as as much as as much as um, my son-in-law wants to help me you know to to listen to me he doesn't know exactly what i've experienced but you but you know because you've you you're still wearing the badge and running around your your town yeah you know so so yeah, so so it's great to have you know comrades in arms that, that you can talk to and, and be and be serious about it too. Not just not just the war stories and not just the funny stories, but also the tragedies to help take that off your back. And that's I, I, that's why I was so excited and so stoked when you asked me to do this because and words getting out and I know from our conversations that you know that Australia you know you've suffered. You've, you, your, your communities out there have suffered loss and your first responders are the, uh, are the first ones to get to those horrible calls. So I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, this, this knucklehead guy from California gets a chance to talk to Australia. Now. <laughs> uh, mate, I just wanted to finish off with, um, you know, you talk about the success of the retreats and, you know, there's still, I don't know whether you know this and I, uh, but there's still two two attendees, two clients from the retreat that I was on that I, not regularly, but probably once a quarter, I touch base with uh, via email. Um, and both of those uh, both of those guys, or guy and a girl, are doing extremely well and have nothing but praise for the program and the retreat that they went through. Um, and I know that's a significant portion of the people that attend. They just get so much out of it. But I suppose for me personally, from sitting through the week with those two first responders to hear where they were at that time and to now, two years later, almost three years later, to see how they've turned their, their lives around, it's a real credit to you and the West Coast West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat Organisation. 
Yeah, the one that I'll say this: um, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of good people to do the work that we do, and you know, it's uh, it's demanding work. It's tiring work. Sometimes it's it, it's depressing, and you know, you, you want to kick walls down. But the reality of the, there's a lot of people out there that, that really do care, and uh, it takes a, it takes a lot of people to do this work, and I'm I'm really fortunate to have good people by my side that just love taking care of our brothers and sisters. Thanks so much, Nick, for putting some time aside on your Friday afternoon, particularly after you've just come off the back of a retreat. I didn't realise that. So, mate, that just um, makes it even more special that you're able to make it. Fingers crossed we can um, we can catch up really soon. Um, do you have an issue at all? If anyone wants to get in touch with me, that I point them in your direction if they're interested to hear a little bit more about the retreats you having an issue with that no none at all um and uh go ahead and you, i don't know uh, how this works but if you want to share our our website you know with them um uh, please feel free you can give them my phone number you have my phone number my contact information uh I, I, i'll tell you my, my life gets better every time i can help somebody so uh, i have no problem answering that phone Thanks, mate, and I know you, you just gave your whole team a plug, but I've got no doubt that you, um, over the years, as well as all the people you work with, have no doubt single-handedly saved many first responder lives. So thanks for the great work that you do. Uh, look forward to catching up in person soon, buddy. I'm looking forward to meet, meeting your family and perhaps catching up with a few of the old guys um, from the retreat would be great one day. So you be safe over there, and thanks again for your time. No problem, my friend, and yeah, you know, looking forward to uh, landing on that big rock that you guys live on one of these days. <laughs> Very good, Nick. Thanks, mate, and uh, we'll catch up soon. All right, man. Take care.